I know that we all miss the days when we could talk about Bitcoin and talk about the crypto market without having to be experts in what's happening in macro markets happening around the world. But that is not the case anymore. I think at this point, we can all admit that we were wrong about the lack of correlation between those markets. And of course, the crypto has traded largely like a risk asset. Now, as usual, when I have questions about what's going on with macro, which is not necessarily my core competency, I bring on experts on Monday. Today, we have Francis Coppola, Mike McGlone, and Dave Weisberger. This is going to be an incredible panel. You guys don't want to miss this. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit the like button. Now, you may notice that I'm not sitting in my studio today. I had to make a very last-minute trip to the West Coast. Uh, so I'm the victim of the red-eye, two hours of sleep, and a, a very glamorous airport hotel room, as you can see here, uh, with spotty internet and my AirPods as a microphone. So I apologize in advance if we have any slight technical issues or uh, anything of the sort. But as I mentioned, you can't talk about crypto anymore without talking about the stock market, without talking about the Fed, without talking about Forex, without talking about everything else that's going on in the world. Now, did I necessarily foresee that I would have to talk about Bitcoin in the context of wars in Ukraine and Jerome Powell? No, I didn't necessarily think that when it was this beautifully uncorrelated asset for a nice decade. But that clearly is not the case anymore. Now, as I said, I'm going to bring on our incredible guests right now. I've got Francis Coppola, Dave Weisberger, and I'll bring on Mike in a second. Uh, here we are. We got Mike McGlone now. Uh, you guys obviously know uh, Mike and Dave very well. Francis, the first time you're here. So welcome. I'm really honored to, to have you. So, Mike, I, I want to start with you because uh, I think that you've been nailing it for a very long time, every time you come on this show, warning, more pain to come, more pain to come, more pain to come. Uh, has the Fed broken enough things yet, uh, or are we still in the more pain to come train? Um, unfortunately, I have not broken enough things yet, and we're still in the more pain to come. It's simple. The Fed's still tightening, and the global economy's heading towards recession. That's just the facts of a year ago, don't fight the Fed, and still don't fight the Fed. It's not that complicated. I'm sure Francis and Dave can comment on that. But here's the fact. The latest ISM manufacturing survey, which measures all services in the U.S., dropped below 50. Um, it's never dropped below 50 after a period of about a year about with, with the Fed tightening. It's always happened when the Fed was easing. So that's what's different this time. I just got off the call with my Bloomberg intelligence uh, colleagues this morning. We go over all the information this week. If our economists expect the CPI to continue to come out weaker and expect that's completely what happens in recessions. Inflation plunges. I fully expect that. Our um, Gina Martin-Adams, our equity strategist, talking about resistance in the stock market. Last year, she only talked about support. Our interest rate strategist thinks 10-year yields can continue to drop. Um, the key thing is right now we're in a bit of a, a unique stage where market's not realizing inflation data is coming out weaker than expected because the world economy is plunging. And it's not just dropping. I look at, I can show you one example. U.S. unleaded gas demand is dropping at a higher velocity than it did in 2008 and very similar than it did in 2000, the first quarter. And the key fact is the Fed is still tightening. So the way I see what's happening this year is um, we should see expect we should see more of what happened last year, but the difference is we can give the Fed to start easing by the end of the year only because they have to, um, and that's going to happen at the least aggressive stage in my lifetime. In the past, they could ease like on a heartbeat when things started flipping over and it kind of got annoying after a while. Now it's going to be like, well, we've learned the lesson of inflation. We're never going to ease with the ease we have in the past. So the, to bring it down to the micro, I look at it. Stock market's probably got another 20% to go, and S&P near 3,000, and to stay down for a long time. The key question I ask people are bullish is what's going to save it? It's not going to be the Fed. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of there. Um, I think gold and long bonds will be some of the best performers way too early last year. But remember, when you buy things like 
uh, gold was unchanged and if you think like by things like long bonds u.s treasury long bonds you always get that premium unless the government defaults that they're not going to and i fully expect bitcoin and ethereum are going to come out ahead but they still have to be pressured if stock market goes down the key thing i'll end with this is one of the best performing assets i've been shocked by and still stick with is ethereum ethereum's up about 10 percent this year yes it might give some of that back but it's holding that ten thousand dollar uh I'm sorry, $1,000 support. Back to you. I really wish it was holding $10,000 support to you. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you. You figured me to go click over very quickly to the, to the chart. And you make the point that maybe the Fed will return to quantitative easing, but in the past, you've sort of talked about that not being the same quantitative easing that we've seen before. It's more of a ceasing of the tightening than it is back to an easy money policy. Francis, is that your take on it? Do you think that we will see decades of easy money again in the future do you think that they've perhaps learned their lesson no i think we this tightening cycle is going to go on for quite a while i mean that doesn't mean we won't see um the fed at times putting liquidity into markets um as it did in september 2019 for example um really to stop markets seizing up because when we're going into this kind of a long scale a, a tightening cycle we are going to see liquidity squeezes in markets and central banks do have a responsibility to make sure that markets don't freeze because of them so there will be episodes of um, liquidity injections into markets but not a return to the years and years of qe that we had before among other things i think central banks now are beginning to understand that actually that sort of qe actually doesn't achieve very much the short-term qe that can ward off a dangerous deflationary spiral or a market freeze is well worth doing but the kind of long-term um keep money really loose keep putting more money into the economy because your governments are tightening like mad and the banks don't want to lend actually isn't really very productive and there are better ways of reflating an economy than that well you, you wrote a book called the case for people's quantitative easing right which basically made the case that quantitative easing as you just said can be good but not when it all goes to the top one percent and the government and the cronies and but when it actually goes directly to the people for the, i think for the first time we actually saw that tested on a grand scale in, in 2020 Although I don't know that a $1,200 stimulus check was quite enough uh, per American to, to, to either prove or disprove your point. But do you believe that there still is a way that quantitative easing could be beneficial? Yeah, I, I'm, in my book, actually, I talk about several, several different types of quantitative easing. And one of them is this providing liquidity into markets, which is essential. Um, another is supporting investment, for example, which is also essential. Um, the um, American government actually did experiment with quite a lot of the things that I suggested and in my view actually slightly overdid it because they did the helicopter money at the wrong time, um, you know, because um, giving people stimulus checks um, and massive QE to increase demand in the economy, which you are simultaneously shutting down, doesn't strike me as awfully bright. Um, you know, what you would want to do is just keep keep people alive and try and keep businesses afloat during that time. You know, mothball them really, um, and then keep your powder dry for maybe doing some helicopter money as you start to reopen. As it is, they did it too early. People they didn't then did it again. Um, I think they did it about three times in all, and people made up massive savings plus also you had people who were continuing to work during lockdown um, working at home didn't have their commuting costs couldn't spend any money um, because nearly everything they would have spent their money on was shut down built up enormous savings and lots of them still got those savings that's one of the reasons why inflation took off and why it's actually proving quite hard to bring it down I thought that they all just bought GameStop and Dogecoin well, they uh, did. <laughs> instead of saving. <laughs> it was YOLO. It was Jake, like, what do you think? <laughs> well, I just I mean, would joke because the easy money ended up obviously driving speculative assets. I mean, look, I, I think the bottom line is that, that quantitative easing after decades of below real, you know, basically zero to negative real interest rates, uh, was a, a interesting situation. Basically, you had decades of capital 
being substituted for labor, which created uh, off the charts wealth inequality, where uh, but effectively kept consumer inflation down because the substitution effects of being able to offshore and automate, even when it is wouldn't be otherwise profitable to do so, is relevant. With that as a backdrop, as Francis said, <laughs> to say it's not too bright may be one of the, the world's great understatements. The fact is, is they basically took, they had been laying kindling, laying dry tinder for decades, and then proceeded to throw gasoline on the fire by giving uh, money to individuals, which is guaranteed to trigger demand. Now, maybe you didn't see it where you are, but the market, the, the economy was open down here. And the effect in Miami was an incredible microcosm. What we saw was unbelievable discretionary spending by all parts of the economy, including the poorest strata. You saw South Beach overrun. I mean, literally overrun by people who ordinarily couldn't afford it, driving, renting Lamborghinis and other things, you know, whooping out of the, the seal. I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, it, it caused a crisis down here. The mayor and it referendas to try to get things closed. Uh, it completely shut down or or changed the tenor of, of of the place. My own drive from New York down to my down to to Miami when we were there, we stopped in Lumberton, North Carolina, and I I kid you not, every single hotel room in Lumberton was 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 booked. And when we, we, we finally ended up getting a, the last room in a, in a quality in that my wife was sure we were going to get shot in. Uh, and the, the clerk at the front desk said, well, everybody's all spending their stimmy checks. That's why it's, it's so bad. It really was incredible. And to not see that flood of money coming in was a problem. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that if anything, you've understated it. Now, the result is the Fed has to and has had no choice but to slam asset prices to try to to break the wealth effect, that's all they can do. But if we're going to talk macro, one of the things that we have to talk about is fiscal profligacy. I mean, the, the central the, the central banks are fighting it, but the governments aren't doing a damn thing to restrain spending and restrain deficits. And something's got to break there. And obviously, the Fed, their most important goal that they don't talk about but is obviously very true, is keeping long rates low. I mean, people keep saying, well, the yield curve is predicting a recession. And Mike, I'm totally with you. I think that it certainly is. Look at the Baltic Dry Index. Look at other things that are indexes of real economy. I mean, there's no doubt that real economic activity is slowing down. There's no doubt capital investment has ground to a screeching, if not halt, a trickle of what it was. But let's make no mistake. If long rates went up, we'd have a huge problem. The government, you'd have no discretionary spending left whatsoever in a balanced budget. You, you forget about the fact that they'd have no interest about balanced budgets, but nowhere outside of maybe Germany in the G20 is there a, is there a government who could afford long rates to go up. And I think that's a real issue. So I really wonder, you know, what happens if that if they ever get called. So far, they've done a masterful job, to be honest. I mean, they've kept the long end down and they're causing the, you know, they're causing the air to come out of the speculation. And that's great. I mean, you know, in, in the long run, it's not terribly fun, you know, as we sit here in markets. But the absolute reality is, is that's what they're trying to achieve. But let's make no mistake. That is the issue. And at some point, governments can't keep spending money they don't have. Does that mean we move from QE to the conversation being yield curve controls and everybody becomes the Bank of Japan? Uh, so so can I follow up on that? Because that's very profound. Please. We are. We just had a blip in the trend. We're all turning Japanese. I mean, that was the narrative for at least a decade. We've had a two-year blip. And why did we have this blip? Francis and Dave described exactly human nature and what humans did to respond to this 100-year pandemic. We threw too much um, liquidity at it, rightly so from a politician's standpoint. Remember, two years ago, we didn't even have vaccines. And now we gain those vaccines within months. And Typically, that takes years. What country didn't do that right? China. Why? Because China's system did not allow that type of, type of intellectual property development. So here's the key thing I think they meant to note here is we had a 100-year event. We had this 100-year war in Europe. And now people are – you hear average consensus on the street. There's, oh, we're going to have a mild recession. I'm like, what are you smoking? When you had the – I mean, I just finding this entertaining. But that's what sell-side people do. And that's one of the things I think – 
it's really enjoyable what the, your three guests, including me, Francis and Dave have. I, I'm much more neutral in Bloomberg Intelligence. And I, I like to point out, I, I can write whatever I want. Just don't be an idiot. And to me is when you have had the hardest tightening ever after the biggest liquidity pump in the history of mankind, that pump is just going to dump like a normal cycle it has in the last 200 years of history. Now, Francis could tell us about the, the boom in bicycle manufacturers in 1890 in the UK. I didn't know about until I read the re- recently read the book Boom and Bust. And I had to get that smile out of you, Francis, because we're going to write the book about this. And here's what the book's going to say. This is my view. This is the biggest global macroeconomic reset in history. And it's so logical. We had 100-year events add up. The war... Trump is president, definitely the plague, and it's all dumping. The key thing is, what do we do right now? So I think we're in a stage right now where we're going to get inflation numbers are going to come out a little bit weaker than expected. The people are going to cheer and then realize, oh, that's bad because we're going to recession. And to me, that's where we have to come out of this. Where do we think of this is going to come out ahead? The key thing you got to bring out of this is a massive, rapidly advancing technology. Francis can tell you this. I just read stories about how in Germany they pulled, they were able to bring in LNG imports in, in, in 200 days. And typically they take two years to set those up. Why? Because we can do it so fast now. This is a basis of the book from Jeff Booth, The Price is Tomorrow. And that to me is what happened. I just was on a call recently, what's happening in the Corn Belt. And we just did an Odlots program on all the electronic surveys and trucking. It's happening so fast that you have to expect the deflationary forces to kick in. It's just going to come that way. I did a little a report on Friday showing the U.S. stock market relative to, relative to U.S. income reached the highest level ever just before the COVID. Now it's all going backwards. So here's what I think we're going to do this year. This year we hit towards that recession. It's going to be worse than everybody expects. The Fed's going to be there's going to be so much pressure for them to ease. There'll be death threats. Paul Volcker got them. Um, but it's going to take a while. And then we should tr- gravitate towards um, cryptos coming out ahead. And I don't mean things like Dogecoin and Shiba Inu. I mean the top ones, Bitcoin and Ethereum. The key thing you have to point out is particularly what Francis will probably point, see is the most significant trend in cryptos is the proliferation of crypto dollars. I mean, the dollar has gone for that base scale. So, U.S. regulators have to get on that properly. But getting back to the big picture, picture macro is, yeah, Bitcoin might get down to 12,000, 10,000, and then it goes back up again. But the key thing I look at as a commodity guy, this time last year, every said crude oil is going above, well, a little bit, above 100 and it's at 75. Why is that? Because we just don't need it anymore. Technology is moving so fast and crypto is a key part of that. So I love the debate between people like Peter Schiff and, you know, um, Fidelity who are accepting and adopting cryptos is why would any rational, smart, educated money manager, investor push back on this technology and not just allocate part of their portfolio? And that's why I look at it. Why would you take that risk of, te- of, of technology moving so fast that we're not going to need that analog gold anymore? We're going to need digital. But that's kind of a ramp. But to me, the key thing is, remember, we're writing the this is going to be Francis and I, maybe Dave will write the textbooks about the story about this. But this is historic and expecting the key thing I'll end with expecting a, a soft landing after the hardest tightening in, uh, in history is just kind of irrational. Francis, I see you shaking your head. <laughs> no, I was nodding. Um, I mean, I, I think this is going to be a much higher, I do actually think this is going to be a much worse, worse recession than, than people are expecting. It's going to be a global one. Um, I mean, we keep talking about the Fed, but we should remember that, that whereas in the past, in say 2017, 2018, the last time we had a crypto bear market, um, it was really just the Fed doing tightening and other central banks were still easing. I mean, the ECB actually didn't even start doing QE until 2015. Um, whereas now everybody's tightening all at once. There's this massive sucking sound of liquidity being just withdrawn from the global economy at an, at an extraordinary rate. Um, and as ever, when you have that kind of liquidity squeeze, it hits risk assets first and hardest. And that's why crypto is being so badly hit. It's not the only type of risk asset being hit either. Um, typically, in this kind of tightening cycle, we also see emerging markets debt being quite hard hit. So we might find that, that we'll see some crisis in emerging markets, I think, if we want to go look beyond crypto. Um, when we have this kind of almost like a tectonic plate shift. I mean, you know, I, I, I live in the British Isles where we don't have tectonic plate shifts, but you <laughs> uh, 
So, and you know that when you have a shift in the San Andreas Fault or something like that, um, then you get earthquakes and, you know, with other faults you might get volcanic eruptions and so forth. And so the kind of fallout we've seen in crypto with, you know, collapses of coins and bankruptcies of exchanges and things like that, I think the earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, they cause massive devastation all over everywhere but the underlying problem is this shift in the macro um, landscape if you like and and um, tectonic plate plate shifts morph the landscape into a new form what's going to come out of this is going to look different from what went into it it's not going to look like what we had before and the difficulty i think and the challenge for us all is to try and work out what it's going to look like in the future and where it's all going and you know where the winners are and who the losers are and kind of where to position ourselves really i, I mean I, I think it's really i would almost argue dave go ahead go ahead that's okay go ahead I was just going to say that uh, I, I think she's 100% correct, obviously, that macro was the initial trigger for the ground to start shaking. But it was the old Warren Buffett, uh, when the tide goes out, you see him swimming naked. And the entire industry effectively was, I'm not saying the assets. Everyone's heard me say this a million times. There's nothing to do with Bitcoin, Ethereum, but largely the industry was greed, corruption and human error. Right. I mean, well, it, the, those those unsecured, uh, uncollateralized loans were made whether macro was good or bad. It just took I, mean, I want to go back to that. To expose it. Yeah, I want to go back to that in a second, because there, there's there, there's something very important to, to be said there. In fact, actually, let's just go there first. I mean, you and I have been talking for a while and you know that my opinion of of most DeFi uh, is very, very strong. I've had two hugely strong opinions. Strong opinion number one, I always start with with a crypto show because people get really angry if I don't start with number one, which is I think that distributed finance is the future. I think that everything that is financed, whether that's security financing stock loan, whether it's interest rate swaps, whether it's repos, et cetera, will eventually use distributed technologies to break the cartels the big banks have on those on those processes where they're earning enormous economic rents. I think that is the future. I think that is 20 years out probably, but I think that is the future. And I think there are a lot of people building a lot of really interesting things to get there. Okay, with that caveat out of the way, most of what we've seen in DeFi was complete and total bullshit. And while there was, but before Fireblocks helped make the crypto markets more efficient, being able to move coin from one exchange to another, there was some demand for borrowing for arbitrageurs. That evaporated. It didn't evaporate completely, but you know, effectively, not a lot. And if you graph the curve of yields that you could get by loaning Bitcoin and Ethereum compared to what you could get by putting money into T-bills, when the T-bills became a higher rate, that spelled enormous problems for a multi-billion dollar industry. In fact, the death of that industry because they were all over leveraged and over collateralized. I wish to God I had thought about how we'd have assured it, to be honest with you, or really had considered the knock-on effects of it, but the entire notion of that corner of the industry has been annihilated. There's no other word for it. There's no need for crypto. I mean, if you look at gold, for example, there is a there is an industry in gold lease rates. It, it exists. It's not very large, but it exists. There will be an industry for some crypto borrowing, clearly, and arbitrage and whatnot that needs to be done. But it got very, very large. So that's that's the first thing. I just wanted to comment on that. I mean, it is it was sadly as predictable as one of my old bosses in the trading floor would say, as mushrooms after a spring rain, right? You know, it's it's just unfortunate. But on the macro side, I think that it's it's really important to understand that we've been talking, there have been many people. Now, admittedly, I follow mostly Austrian monetarist types because that tends to be, despite having gone to Northwestern, I tend to agree more with Milton Friedman Chicago School. Used to infuriate my professors, and that was a long time ago, but so be it. Uh, the fact of the matter is people have been talking about kicking the can down the road on the fiscal side for years. I mean, literally decades now. I remember reading Bill Fleckenstein in the 90s where he would talk about the Fed and he would have people on, you know, he, he wrote a book about Greenspan and it wasn't very complimentary. And all that seems like ancient history. My point here is, yes, I think there's been tectonic shifts. 
I'm still wondering whether whether the people in control really believe there's been a tectonic ship or if they can actually run this and kick the can down the road again uh, in a different fashion. And I think politics is going to enter it. I agree with Mike. I think this year is going to, 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 to use another word, on the, the macro side, suck. But going into a presidential election, is the Fed going to – I mean, I, I think they're going to let things get bad this year and save their dry powder for the following year. Uh, just because I'm very cynical. I can't help myself. I am extremely cynical about politics. And I just wonder, you know, is that the year that, uh, that, that the Fed might pivot? They may very well delay their pivot more than people think, because I don't know that they really care. But we'll see. I'm curious what Mike thinks about that. Well, I also want to ask Mike, Mike, you've mentioned crypto dollars, which I love because it's a much better term than stable coins. Um, <laughs> and uh, but interestingly, what Dave just described, the lack of yield or safe yield in the crypto industry has been sort of the death knell. But for a stable coin provider, for a company like Tether or USDC, it's actually a massive boon because they can just park all the money in short term T-bills and make four and a half or Five percent and running a stablecoin has become an incredible business. That um, is, I like to call them crypto dollars because that's what they are. And maybe um, Dave or Francis can show me. I hear ninety-eight percent of all. I've never been able to see a good, solid stablecoin that tracks anything but the dollar. That's got more than a billion dollars of AUM market cap. So to me, that's a key thing. That's let's talk about those key. I, I like to point out, um, like. Um, Dave mentioned the uh, getting mushrooms in your grass after it rains and like having warmer than normal winters in Europe. That's like, oh, well, that's kind of the trend. <laughs> if we're going to worry about global warming in summer, it happens in the winter too. So it was just kind of one of the things I enjoyed pointing out as a strategist is um, that we talked about yield a little bit. Dave mentioned yield. If you want yield now, what I hear from some of the real hot big money now is they're, they're looking at GBTC. Now, yes, they did before. They got stopped out, but it's a 50% discount. You look at BITO, B-I-T-O, the number one traded, at least it still was the um, exchange traded Bitcoin ETF. It now is rolling in the backwardations, outperforming Bitcoin. It outperformed Bitcoin last year, and it's part of the win-win. When are you going to go back to Contango and Bitcoin? It's it's in backwardation. That's very unusual. It should be like reflect the shirt, the measure of T-bill rates like gold does. But when you can get a better than uh, out, when you can outperform the actual underline with a product, you can just push a button with Schwab. Why? To me, that's happening. But we're in that stage now. It's the news is so bad. Um, and the key thing I've been enjoying really pointing out last year about, you know, when it was everybody is so bullish commodities it's just one key problem with commodities open interest was declining i've never seen that in a bull market gross open interest in crude oil and copper and corn and everything was dropping in futures and there's only one major market in all the markets i watch we see increasing increase in open interest in futures and that's in bitcoin and ethereum now yes it's still a very small portion of the market it's i see the institutional side but to me that's where everything is going and it's so small i mean it's such a maybe one percent of total investable assets is cryptos that's when it was two trillion. Now it's one trillion or less than one trillion. So that's that's why that's why I like to point out those trends. And and then I look at it. Okay, if you're from an American standpoint, um, and anything but China, which is pushed back on it, and you see it's gone for the dollar. No, nothing. No offense against Europe, where it had negative yield rate rates. You're not going to mess that up. Now, of course, I'm an optimist in some ways, but. Um, to me, that's the key thing is what are the trends? What should change these trends? And there's a potential potential that the trajectory will actually accelerate. To me, that's where the risk is for people who are not allocating to this space. So to me, that's the bottom line. A chart I have, I'm looking at right now is that open interest in Bitcoin futures. And people say they're still talking about banning in the U.S. You can't. It's like banning crude oil. <laughs> you can't. It's already in the CFTC regulation. People are trading futures on it. That's way past that. China tried. I, I want to tie one thing that you just said, Mike, to something Fra Francis said, and then I'd love to hear Francis's comment. But Francis, I agree with you on emerging market debt and what's going on in emerging markets. The, the, the thing that I always point out about Bitcoin, and, and less so with Ether, but Bitcoin for sure, is the demand for Bitcoin fundamentally. In the U.S., the demand is based on people who, like me and obviously Mike, believe in asymmetric return upside that if it achieves digital gold status, right? You know, that's a 20x from here, and it's an option. And Bitcoin trades like a risk asset because it is that option. 
But if you're sitting in the, in the, in the emerging, in an emerging market country, you know, and, and basically 30% of the world's population is that way. And your currencies are de deflating, depreciating, or wildly erratic. Bitcoin provides a lifeline and people out here, it's very hard to understand, but when you start talking to people and, and when you're in Miami, you get to talk to it all the time. I mean, anyone who ever, if I ever wear my coin route shirt, you know, my, you know, who wave the flag shirt out there and I get in an Uber, the odds are high that a Venezuelan you know, Uber driver or, you know, whatever, and I've had plenty will say things like, yeah, you know, we, we understand Bitcoin because we, our currency is worthless and we need something. And if, in fact, the, the macro picture does slide towards more fractures and stresses in the third world, that is yet even more adoption being driven as a groundswell. And that, that's that's kind of my thesis, which is decidedly not, you know, the, the thesis from some of the, the people who are, are who you tend to fight with on Twitter about about Bitcoin. But I mean, I look at it from a very practical point of view. I mean, adoption network strength is shown. I mean, you know, we've talked about this hash rates on Bitcoin terrible for miners, but great for the asset are, are still, you know, pushing all time highs. And that's because there's the real demand in the world's periphery. And, you know, I'm curious what you think about that, because to me, that's that that's the the asymmetric, you know, reason that a lot of smart money. And that's why Bitcoin is held in at this price. I mean, you know, it's basically been at the same price. It's like watching paint dry. This market has been unbelievable. It drives Scott crazy. It drives me crazy, but it is what it is. Francis, uh, please feel free. Yeah, um, kind of hard to predict because I, I keep coming back to this kind of dual nature of crypto, really. Um, I wrote about this a while ago that, that actually the stablecoin phenomenon in a way solved the, the problem of trying to reconcile a, a store of value with a medium of exchange when they do very different things. Um, you know, in, in an emerging market economy, if you're currency is deflating, then yes, you have an inflation risk, um, depending on how exposed you are to imports, really. Um, and But you have to ask yourself whether something like Bitcoin is necessarily a good substitute for that. It may be a better place to put your savings, and it may be a way of getting money out of the country. And I venture to suggest that to suggest that that's what your Venezuelan Uber, Uber drivers are actually doing, is getting their money out of the country, um, because Bitcoin's actually quite good at that. Um, and and it's not even, or it hasn't been in this particular um, bear run, a particularly good place to, to keep your savings, because as inflation took off, Bitcoin's price went down, which is not what you want for an inflation hedge. So I would suggest that, that probably, um, if we see seeing increased demand in emerging markets, it would be because of capital flight. Can I, can I just add I one? Could, please go ahead. Scott, I mean, one thing on that. I think that is part of We both, I think Dave and Francis both nailed the main reason to not reject this, not take the risk of rejecting this technology. And it's um, what you mentioned about it's not, you know, what's us look at world population. How many of us are banked? I mean, it's less than 50% that you know, grew up with the privileges we have. And that's, if Dave mentioned the thing you can really get in uh, Miami is just, and not only access to Bitcoin, but to the dollar through your phone, instant settlement, your government doesn't need to know about it, China, one example. And you get it, you can, can, you've never been able to do that in history of mankind, be able to do that unless you were, you know, stuffing, uh, you know, Spanish pieces of eight in your, in your um, pockets. This is the first time in history you can do that. And to me, that's why the dollar is winning. And that's why I love this narrative when you see the old China and Russia pushing back and, and, de and pressuring the dollar. And I'm like, are you kidding? The whole world is going back towards the dollar, particularly because they can do it easily. Stable coins, they don't have to go through your CBDC. And by the way, they don't, you know, I always like to use that example. Who wants to immigrate to those countries? So to me, this is the macro of the technology. And it really hit me on a panel in Miami recently. They asked me about it. I'm like, yeah, I don't understand so much some of the interworkings of cryptos, but I get the technology and having come from the trading pitch, which no longer exists, you just got to adopt it or you're going to fall behind. But to me, it's getting access to the dollar on this. I know they have, you know, can get phones like this for a couple hundred dollars. Everybody in the world is getting access. 
I, I think one other thing that's interesting, you mentioned China. I mean, China is fascinating, right? You know, they, uh, it, 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 I don't think it's remarkably surprising that zero COVID goes poof after Xi gets power. Uh, because now we can afford to, and the last thing he wants is discontent. But if you look at what's going on in Hong Kong, and and to think that 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 you know, and, and basically Hong Kong is is making a play for more digital asset uh, companies to be there, and they're trying to promote digital assets, they're trying to starting to promote crypto. That is a big deal, because anyone who thinks that that come that that's completely, I mean, it could be a trial balloon from China, but it's certainly not without a blessing from the from the CCP. And that's a big deal because I think they need Hong Kong as their I mean, uh, people have, have used the, the word uh, escape valve you know, basically you know to be able for economic pressure or to be able to deal with these things. I mean there's no doubt you're right. Uh, you know the whole notion of petrodollars vis-a-vis petro yuan and I've read a lot about that recently is a very big deal. You know, wars have been fought over less, so it's a very big deal. But the fact that China, at the same time as all that is going on, is effectively relaxing its stance toward, so towards digital assets, maybe it's just to reward their wealthy people, but it's a non-trivial thing, and it is, it is interesting. I'm not sure what to make of it yet, but I think that we will look back and say this was interesting. Uh, Francis, you made the point that you think that the perhaps primary use case is capital flight. I, I would just respond to that slightly and say it's actually also a two-way street. I mean, I, I'm only speaking anecdotally, but a lot of people try to get money into the country to their families via Bitcoin as well. So it's not always about getting the money out. And Dave, then to your point, obviously saying that you know, you'll buy Bitcoin in a hyperinflating economy comes back to my point being not a skeptic, but I have to look at it from both sides, that may stable coins are also better for that. I mean, don't people in emergency in emerging economies want access to dollars? Isn't that what they truly lack and not necessarily access to a volatile asset? I mean, anyone 100%. can respond to that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and and that's why, <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest, that's why the Bitcoin USDT market is so incredibly big, because it is a two-way street. I think that it's it eventually, and, and I will continue to say this because if, you, if I don't, people will, will misinterpret. Bitcoin does trade like an option for the reason that I've said, but to people whose, whose, whose currency devalues by a thousand percent, Bitcoin dropping 70% from its highs uh, is not that problem. I mean, if you're writing it out, but when they want to spend it, being able to convert it to USDT seamlessly and easily on any one of a number of exchanges that will let them uh, or DeFi, even DeFi platforms, if, if they have to, is, is, is a big deal. And I think Mike is right. I mean, the biggest policy mistake the U.S. policymakers could ever make, I think, would be to abandon dollar hegemony in the digital asset markets. Uh, so Fran huge. Francis, what did Churchill say about Americans doing the, you know, until they finally come down to the right conclusion? <laughs> Something about, you know, they'll do find all the available options until until the right ones discover something like that. Didn't we just do that with our event, you know, electing our House uh, Speaker? <laughs> You're on mute. You're on mute. Yes, with all, everything we heard about about the um, EU <laughs> making a rerun referenda until you've got the right results. I mean, honestly, the <laughs> House of Representatives have just done that on steroids. I've never seen anything like it. Extraordinary. Um, what I was going to say, actually, was was to do with this this whole dollar, dollar demand thing because um, I do I, this this idea that that dollar hegemony, hegemony is somehow going to end, that everybody's going to shift away from dollars to something else. I, I think we've been seem to have been talking about that for the last 20 years and it's never actually happened and and I remain unconvinced so um, I, I, I guess Mike you've been reading Zoltan Pozhar and and I uh, with his idea that there was going to be this coming moving to a multipolar world and the Chinese and the Russians and the and the and the um, Indians are going to right. set us all up uh, and 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 they're going to back everything with commodities and 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 I yeah. and I just think yeah okay we seem to have had that one for a very long time too and I'm I remain unconvinced um, but but I think with 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 emerging markets I wanted to to just pick up something Dave said because I think that 
we, although I think that emerging markets, we are going to see some crises in emerging emerging markets to do with their debt and maybe to do with their currency values as well. The kind of falls in currency values that we've seen in Venezuela are outliers. We don't see falls like that even in emerging, emerging markets currencies very often. Um, hyperinflation is rare. It's a rare event and, and, and tends to be associated with uh, particular sets of economic circumstances. Venezuela's hyperinflation was very much to do with a brutal terms of trade shock in 2015, following on years of profit, fiscal profligacy, as you know. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and then a, a regime that basically didn't want to let go and didn't want to change its stance and thinks it can kind of gamble for resurrection. And that's Venezuela. Um, and that's not necessarily true everywhere. Um, it, it's concerning that we are seeing some quite bad terms of trade shocks all over the place at the moment, including my own country. Um, we're all going to be much poorer. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that just because the UK is suffering a very bad terms of trade shock, that its currency is going to hyperinflate. I don't think we should necessarily extrapolate from one to the other. Uh, I mentioned that because there's actually been some speculation about that, or there was in September anyway. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I'm much more, much more calmer and practical than that. I, I, and although it is kind of strange for me, having lived in the UK when the dollar, when the pound was almost two to one to the dollar, uh, it was a while ago, admittedly. But you know, I, I lived there for five years, and and it, it, things actually feel cheap there now. Uh, but you know, so be it. It, it really, it's all, everything in economics, as we all know, I mean, we all take it for granted, but I think a lot of Scott's listeners don't. Everything in economics happens on the margin. And I'm not talking about things going nuts. I'm just talking about the marginal issue of not being able to trust your currency is, is relevant. I mean, Turkey isn't hyperinflation, but the Turkish market for Bitcoin is maybe the most active in the world per capita. And that's not an, that is literally not an accident. They love gold too. Why? Exactly. It's the <laughs> same thing. And and so you know, but my point is more that the groundswell, if you if there is going to be a groundswell for Bitcoin, and and obviously the market is pricing the chance of Bitcoin achieving gold status, I mean, depending on what you think the monetary component of gold's market cap is. I mean, I tend to think it's around 80 percent, give or take, based on demonetization of silver and relation to platinum and world scarcity and you can go through that and that could be an entire panel but you know we don't have to do that but whatever you think whether it's 50 percent 75 percent or more it's a substantial amount the market is telling you that bitcoin they're pricing at less than a five percent chance of, of it achieving that sort of status that's what it's saying so to me it's an option uh and i just look at the adoption metrics and i'm much more confident about that happening now than i was four years ago I have, and the price I, is the same. Yeah. I have to piggyback on that too a little bit. The one thing I enjoy doing is, I'm, including yours, Scott, I am addicted to podcasts. And I do enjoy young people, nothing wrong with being young, um, who get into cryptos talking about macroeconomics. And the thing, the thing that Francis mentioned and Dave mentioned, I've heard it since I've been in the bonds since the 80s, is how a foreigner is going to sell U.S. bonds. And I'm like, okay, then where are they going to go? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And I know you're laughing. Like, good luck with that one. You want to go buy Canada? Sure. Maybe you can buy some Swissies. Maybe you can buy some Chinese. I'm like, that's improving. That's getting more and more. In there. And it's, it's and, and lack of better words, is pissing off people like China and Russia because they can't even compete. It's getting worse for them. So that to me is where Bitcoins and cryptos fit into the space. And I love that narrative of using commodities as currencies. Commodities deflate over time almost always historically and look what's happened into the u.s we just had this example of russia trying to do a 21st a 20th century invasion in the 21st century completely failed with just a little bit of technology remember afghanistan stinger missiles u.s comes in there helps out the northwestern countries help out with a little bit of intelligence and some good technology blown away commodities are the same thing the key thing is that i like to point out is people are bullish commodities i'm like look at cryptos commodities have a problem with the elasticity of supply and demand you will always be able to create more for less unless you expect humans are stupid commodities are stupid but cryptos are the opposite you look at the declining supply of ethereum the base layer for the dollar in the world now because of cryptos, declining the supply of Bitcoin. What Dave mentioned, this adoption is still so fractional. I look at this five, 10 years from now, like 
I remember Netflix when it first came out. And I remember when the first day I walked into trading pitch in Chicago and said, there's a better way. And this is a better way. Yeah. I mean, I think that people, unless you're Paul Ehrlich, who for some <laughs> reason 60 minutes gave, gave uh, airtime to, I mean, he's been wrong for longer and worse <laughs> than any professor ever. I mean, I, I think it would be hard pressed to find someone who has said dumb things more consistently for longer than Paul Ehrlich. And I, and I, I don't care if they're devotees. I mean, I remember because I was a, a high school and college debater. And so if you're uh, a debater, the one thing yeah. you learn is how to predict the end of the world. And so he was incredibly well quoted and, you know, Malthus, Malthusian argument, oh, good point. read yeah. the treatises and all this stuff. Yeah. Mike succinctly explained why these people were dumb. They were dumb then and they're dumb now. Commodities are, are something there. Yes, there's a people say, well, there's a finite amount in the Earth's crust. It's he, yes, right. but mankind's ingenuity to extract them. Yeah has gotten better and better and better. And mankind's in, in, ingenuity to use them has gotten better and better. And so, yeah, that, that is a very important macro force that I just had to expand on it, Mike, because after seeing the Paul Ehrlich stuff over the last <laughs> few weeks, I mean, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, if anyone believes that the dollar is going to lose global reserve status and is going to hyperinflate, I invite them to short it uh long term and see how it goes for them it's the same argument it, like you said it's been happening for decades and i would make the argument that if the dollar yeah if the dollar hyper inflates uh it's going to be the last one to go and right before the entire world is uh on fire it's not going to be because something else superior uh replaces it that's my well, well that, that that's a key point you, you have to replace it with something so it's like it like teddy roosevelt said unless you if you know um you, you unless you're um yeah, if you complain, same thing's bad about something. Unless you come up with a solution, you're complaining. I'm like, what's the solution? And that's why cryptos might be, but you don't want to spend them. You want to spend your dollars, and you don't want to have have to hold on a currency that's deflating rapidly. There's no better case. But to me, what just happened in the U.S. Congress to me was actually, in many ways, very profound and very bullish. Because here's the key thing I remember, having lived in Europe and having traveled there a lot, and sometimes you only get the, Dave and Francis know, the best information when you're with people who run money, when you're having drinks and alcohol with them away from cameras, is the truth is, thank God for U.S. protection. Now, it ain't perfect. But without that, we're all screwed. And everybody just saw what happened with these two autocratic regimes trying to do that. It failed. But the key point is, I think, is this period right now is going to mark a major inflection point where they say empires last a thousand years. What are we, 200 years, 300 years in the U.S.? To me, this is accelerating. Yes, I'm very biased, but I see what's happening in the Midwest, in the Corn Belt, where I'm from. Used to be the Rust Belt. It's booming. We make commodities from they cost almost nothing to make, but energy supplier, energy surplus, agriculture surplus, and a lot of dumb decisions, yes, but much worse decisions in, um, in, in, uh, in Europe. And what's happening now, you have this situation between China. They need all this commodity energy because they weren't able to produce it. In the U.S., we got past that. And they're getting it from the dicey source, Russia. I mean, good luck with that relationship. We've moved past that already. We don't really access... And in fact, the key thing to remember is energy is part of this. U.S. energy consumption peaked about 20 years ago. It's been declining. And that's just rapidly advancing technology. You make an interesting point. You talk about being dependent upon Russia. I mean, three months ago, all we were talking about was how horrible winter was going to be in Europe. They were dependent on Russian oil. Prices were going to be skyrocketing. Pipeline got blown up. They started buying natural gas from the United States and U.S. won. Right. So in, in that case, if, it, if we're talking about Ukraine-Russia situation, ended up being another massive boon for the United States because now we're the supplier of natural gas to all of Europe. The producers. Never really happens the way. Yeah, it's great for commodity producers. North America is the haven. I mean, just look at America. You don't have to. The joke here is, well, maybe we can just invade Canada and give them a free ride to Florida and they're happy. I mean, it's just, it's safe. I mean, it's, come on, it's just, it's silly, but it's true. And you don't have, but in China, how many borders do they have to worry about um, and have to, and will have to more. It's just, and it's just, thank God for the system. Let's not mess it up. But that open debate is a key thing I wanted to get to is if you're investing in the U S 
you don't have to worry about one person uh, earn the dollar. You don't have to one person wake up one morning, make a decision. You're screwed. You it's open debate and it will be open debate. And that's what you saw. Open debate. You don't see that in a lot of places where they want to have a CBDC. Like, good luck. No one's going to want to invest in your country or your currency when there's not going to be open debate about what happens with things like we just did. Yeah, I, I think this. Oh, sorry, Francis, go ahead. So carry on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say the CBDC thing. A lot of people have been talking about that lately. I, I mean, you just made a point without without explaining. I just want to elaborate. I mean, the 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 issue with CBDCs is almost complete government control. <clears throat> There's never been a tool invented quite like it, where you could literally program money centrally. Uh, I don't think it ever flies here for the same reason that I think it's really hard to get rid of cash. Uh, there are a lot of countries who are going to want it. I mean, having a currency that is controlled by the government where they can effectively inflate it or deflate it at whim and effectively stop people from spending it by programming it or, or allow it to be spent or not spent or freeze. I mean, I just think of the panic that I felt. And I didn't really feel panic, but it was annoying. I mean, I couldn't get into... Uh, TD Bank branch because the card readers weren't working, and just that you know uh, you know uh, because my you know we were at a flea market. My wife wanted cash. Now it turns out we scraped together enough to buy the thing that she wanted, but you know because most of the time we don't use cash, so I don't really care. But just not being able to get into a stupid bank branch, you know, caused intense frustration. Now take that same thought and say, okay, the government can say you could get to the you know, to the checkout line, you can hand your card to a waiter trying to spend your CBDC. And they say, oh, no, sir, you can't. You've eaten too much beef already this week. And that could happen. I mean, and, and that is, I mean, while it, you, it's hard to imagine it here, uh, believe me, that is what certain countries, certainly China, seems to be moving towards. And that is a very scary thought. So what has U.S. done with banks and credit cards and primary dealers? Regulate them, let it happen, and you hope they don't dig into all your personal information, but it's worked. Why not do that with um, crypto dollars? Francis, what's your take on central bank digital currencies? Well, oh, I, you go ahead. I think we should be careful not to assume that one size fits all. That, that the creation of national currencies, this is just the latest iteration of a creation of a national currency. Um, how that currency is used and controlled is to a great deal a great extent culturally determined. It's interesting that, that Dave, for example, reacts the way you react the way you do to the whole idea of a government controlled currency that can tell you what you should do with your money. We react similarly in the UK to the idea of, of there being some kind of money that the government can deny people the right to use to spend it on cigarettes or whatever they want to do with it right um we're very in and these are cultural things this is um in a way one of the strengths of our respective democracies that we do react like that to excessive government control and not all not all countries have that kind of bloody mindedness if you like that says we are not going to be told what to do by government um, there are countries, and I have to say Russia is one of them, and China is another, where um, state control is much more traditional, if you like. It's much more accepted. I remember, and, and that's true not only in those big economies, but in some smaller ones as well. I, I recall um, years ago um, having um, sitting next to Vito Costanzio, who was at the time at the ECB. Um, at a dinner which we were talking um, about Latvia um, and um, the enormous crash. I don't know if you know, the, Latvia was hit almost worse than the other, other economy by the financial crisis um, and it had to have an IMF bailout and the IMF told them to devalue their currency versus the euro. They weren't part of the euro at the time and they said no. They stuck with their peg because they wanted to join the euro and they took a 25% drop in GDP in one year. And um, and he said, and I said, that's extraordinary. Why would they do that? And he said, you have to remember where they've come from. They're a, they were a command economy. And I went and did a bit of research and found they'd actually had a bigger drop than that in 1992 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It had dropped by 32%. Um, you know, and then they'd gone through the Russian default because they still got ties to, to Russia. They, they, it had been this roller coaster ride, really. And so. Their, their cultural background was one of, we will just put up with this 
And I think that other countries, particularly those that have come perhaps from a communist background, have had experiences of communism, um, particularly, um, or simply state dictatorships of one sort or another, or empires, um, are often, might well be more accepting of state control of money and really quite intrusive state control of what you can do with your money than um, the Western democracies are. I, I wonder, you know, having studied this, you know, historically, how much of that is because the state has had so much control that they were able to do that. And what happens as the nation's youth in this internet connection connected world sees what's going on in other countries and what does that portend? I mean, I'll leave that as, as an open question, but I do think it's interesting. It's really hard to completely control media, uh, whereas 50 years ago, it was really easy to control, you know, the information that your public consumed. I mean, I always joke about the New York Times being Pravda on the Hudson. And that is, uh, and, and, and the thing is, is, the funny part of it is Mike gets the joke. You talk to a 20-year-old and they go, what's Pravda? <laughs> and that's and of course, point. that, of course, makes me start feeling really old, but we won't go there. It's just the fact is, is control of information is getting is, is much harder. I mean, we you know, everyone's up in arms about the Twitter files and yada, yada. But even there, that's really on the margin. I mean, okay. Francis is right. <laughs> Culturally, we are expect we just assume we have free flow of information. So that's yeah. the cool thing about having uh, offspring. I'm, I'm my 22 year old, I, and he's home from break. I said to him, "Daddy, so how's uh, where's your book?" He goes, "It's charging." I mean, when I was 22, the concept of charging a book did not exist. I, mean, I was like, "Whoa, that just like ran me over!" Like my book's charging. Uh, <laughs> but so, the, go ahead, Francis. Go ahead. So, so, so I mean, I mentioned Latvia, and Latvia has moved on even since then. But uh, but the the long shadows of the past do remain. Um, and really, I mean, even just having war in Europe again is an example of the long shadows of the past, because that fault line um, along the border of Russia, um, and that's been a melting pot for thousands of years, it really yeah. has. So if we were going to have another major war in Europe, it was always going to be along that fault line. Um, it was only arguably a matter of when. And I don't think we should, on the one hand, we can say, well, we do move on. The younger generations are different from the older ones. You know, um, I, I call the Telegraph newspaper in UK Tory, Tory, Tory Pravda. <laughs> and I'm sure my kids don't know what I mean. Um, yeah. So same thing. Um, but um, that said, but the long, these long historical shadows do, do remain and they come back to haunt us. So we are going to recycle in new forms some of the events of the past, I think. But one key thing here, I think, to mention that is important is people keep talking about the interconnected world and how that's breaking apart. I think cryptos are really, I mean, look at the calling, the cryptos and pandemic really brought the world together. One thing it did shift is it made most of the world realize that China is a poor supplier and an irresponsible supplier of goods anymore. And there's, you see so much in this country. It's just a beginning massive shift. Not only can do it cheaper with technology, but we've got Mexico right next to us. We've got South America. The Maclidors are kicking in. That whole trend, I think President Z's finally realized that, realized that G20, that he made one of the biggest mistakes in history by closing up on a, a country that only exports energy and does not import goods. So to me, this shift that's happening is much more, and cryptos are the center of the world becoming much more interconnected. And I don't know how many times I'll speak with people who are in you know, what part of the world, and they're mining Bitcoin, and they're working on nodes, and we're all transacting at the same time. It's just, to me, this is part of that what's really solidified the world away from autocratic um, regimes that are trying to control you. Freedom is contagious once people experience it. Historically, the, the, the autocracies... Uh, fall not when things are bad they fall when things are improving and people have the ability and see mm. what's better and you know i i'm look i'm a, a huge believer almost a zealot uh for economic freedom for that reason i think that you know i hate you know the fact that that in in colleges in this country more than 50 percent of the students surveyed are have a positive uh, thought towards socialism considering 5,000 years of human history says it's never worked but the reason is because what people call capitalism might not very well be free. It could be cronyist. It could be many, many things. And, you know, economic freedom is something one can be for and not be for large corporations dominating the economy. In fact, it, they actually should be the opposite, but it, it tends to be that way. So when you start getting philosophical, 
it's it's interesting. I mean, the, the point about that Mark Yusko makes, he always calls Bitcoin the base layer of the Internet of Value. That's his point, whether he's right or wrong. Uh, we, you know, history, as I said, will will speak. I, I, I think that there's certainly a, a more likelihood of that type of thing emerging than less. And given the fact that the market, as I said, pricing it at less than 5% probability, my math brain says that's a good bet. But, you know, then again, we, you have to look at things it, 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 within historical context. And Francis is exactly right. There are, you know, history has shown, you know, uh, what happens with autocracies. Some of them have lasted thousands of years. I mean, you know, not thousands of years, but a thousand years. And, you know, our time scale sitting on this call, you know, Scott has people who want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we're not talking about tomorrow. We're talking about years. And that's kind of a very important point just to bring it back. I'm sorry for, for waxing on philosophically. <laughs> I think tomorrow they're going to uh, watch this stream in China and dock all four of us some social credits. Unfortunately, <laughs> their central bank <laughs> that's probably what we all have going for us. But we are actually well up against time. I've actually kept you guys uh, over, over time. And I really appreciate the incredible conversation. I'm glad I was able to make this work uh, on on the road uh you're all welcome back anytime i think mike and dave you guys are just generally here on mondays but francis you're 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 welcome back anytime really appreciate the perspective and uh playing nice because i know that uh you know you've probably had a, a few things where you beat your tongue today <laughs> I, I i would imagine but um thank you all so much i will be back hopefully tomorrow morning i'll let you guys know uh might be an even a even worse internet situation but uh thank you all for joining Everyone, Francis, Mike, Dave, uh, please follow all three of them uh, on Twitter. They're tagged in the description. And everyone else, I will see you guys tomorrow. Thank you all once again. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. That's dope.